First and foremost, thank you for the invitation to join you for the Tuesday seminar. Um, as Kate mentioned, I sort of fairly recently submitted, and to have an opportunity to re-engage with my material as I wait for my viva is sort of welcomed, um, <laughs> but I think an important, uh, an important exercise, if nothing else. So it's really exciting for me to be able to share a piece of, of my thesis with you. It's going under the quite sort of unexciting, but maybe to the point title, uh, here of responding to sexual violence and conflict, fighting impunity in DRC, but I'm hoping that it will be sort of one of the first papers that comes out of the thesis um, that will be looking at delineations of perpetratorhood in responses to uh, sexual violence and conflict in policy and in practice in Congo. So thank you for being here. Um, I welcome your, your feedback and thoughts. Uh, hopefully, again, we'll help prepare for some questions that might come up uh, the impending viva. So for the next 45 minutes or so, um, well, for the first few minutes, I'll spend some time setting the scene in some way, uh, sort of situating the material. Um, and then I'll say a few words about the broader project and the methodology behind uh, the thesis and then this particular piece of it too, before turning to uh, the events and reporting that led up to the adoption of the first UN Security Council resolution uh, to address sexual violence and conflict, Resolution 1820, with a particular eye on how sexual violence and conflict was defined uh, for the institutional purposes of the Council at the time, and thus the ways that these shaped uh, the fight against impunity uh, at the international policy level. Um, given that we have some time, um, I'm also going to show a short video that was produced by the FCO in the run-up to the Global Summit to End Sexual Violence and Conflict. I don't know if some of you may have heard that that happened in, in was a, couple of, a, few, I must say, a couple of years, it was about four years ago now, uh, in June 2014. Um, and then from there, we'll go from this kind of international policy space uh, into practice in Eastern DRC, looking first at a high-profile trial uh, that took place in the town of Minova in May 2014, um, and then looking at the less high-profile sort of everyday justice uh, in local courts um, that sort of, on which I suppose <coughs> the international spotlight is, is less bright, um, and then offer some sort of brief conclusions. Um, so as... Many of you, or some of you may have seen, responding to sexual violence in conflict, uh, including, or in particular in DRC, was back under the international spotlight um, earlier this month, when Dr. Dennis Mukwege and uh, Nadia Murad were jointly awarded uh, the Nobel Peace Prize for their efforts to end the use of sexual violence as a weapon of war and armed conflict. Uh, Dr. Dennis Mukwege is a famous gynecologist who uh, is the founder and director of a, a hospital just outside of Bukavu in, in South Kivu, and, and very well known for his work. Uh, as it's often stated, sort of repairing women um, in the region. Now, this prestigious recognition of their work came in the 10th year uh, since the adoption of UN Security Council Resolution 1820, it was adopted in June 2008, which was, as I mentioned, the first to establish sexual violence and conflict as a threat to international peace and security as part of its still evolving agenda on women, peace and security. And I'll talk a fair bit more about that um, in a little bit, but as you'll see from the slide, this is taken from its first operative paragraph. Um, the importance of it is that it, it recognizes sexual violence as a possible tactic of war that can impede the restoration set of international peace and security and can thus, under certain circumstances, trigger action from the Security Council. So in the decades since, we've seen a remarkable uh, surge in attention to sexual violence across scholarship, policy, and in practice. Um, and I won't go into as much detail as I'd love to now, but it's important to note that the mounting evidence and numbers of testimonies uh, that were uh, emerging of sexual violence experienced by women and girls experienced in DRC in the sort of late 90s to early to mid 2000s um, were an important focus of and actually a really important impetus for 
uh, the adoption of the resolution and the advocacy efforts that, that led to it. Um, as you'll note from, I suppose, the following slide, I should do that. Um, the focus on DLC has been sustained in the aftermath of the resolution, so in 2008. The country was since labelled, uh, quite controversially, as seen by some as the rape capital of the world and the worst place on earth to be a woman. Um, and as you'll see from this graph, it sort of was the highest level recipient of uh, international donor funding on sort of sexual and gender-based violence uh, projects. Significantly higher than the second, which was the second country, highest country recipient, which was Uganda. So all that to show that this, this focus on sexual violence has been sustained and has had very clear implications uh, in, in levels of, of funding and, and practice ground. So as, as a result of their centrality, really, the, document ex the, doc the documented experiences, sorry, um, which notably emphasised the large scale of the violence um, committed against uh, women and girls in the conflicts, as well as their extraordinary brutal nature, became somewhat defining of the perceived nature of the harm of sexual violence and conflict, its victims and its perpetrators. And I, I use the term here sort of, they became quintessentialized. Um, this sort of a carefully curated and say quintessentialized definition or understanding of sexual violence was encoded in the resolution and in broader operational structures, notably delineating who international actors believe they are protecting from what kinds of harms and crucially for our purposes now, committed by whom. In effect, given the myriad sexual harms that are committed in contexts of conflict, as in any context, and by a myriad, sort of myriad actors, who the perpetrators of sexual violence in DRC are is in fact far from inevitable. But I imagine that thinking about, and maybe even coming to this presentation, uh, to, to, to think about fighting impunity for sexual violence in DRC, you possibly have a fairly clear image in mind of, of who it is we'll be talking about um, when we're talking about perpetrators of sexual violence um, in conflict in Congo. And I imagine that this image may be of a, a sort of an African black armed man uh, in uniform. So through this presentation, we're going to talk about constructions of perpetratorhood that are defined in discourses and responses to sexual violence and conflict, sort of specifically or relative to Eastern DRC. So really what I hope that we'll do through this is to unpack who we have in mind when we talk about uh, sexual violence in DRC. And I want to show that the dominant constructions embedded in policy and, and in advocacy are not accidental. <coughs> and I do this with a particular eye to Security Council Resolution 1820 and the deliberations leading up to it. Having established sort of this international policy landscape, as I mentioned, uh, I seek to show that these, this dominant construction is more challenging to pin down uh, in response efforts in practice, and specifically in efforts to fight impunity. So as a, a quick clarifying note, sorry, I focus on 1820 for the reasons that I mentioned. Um, it represented a, a significant juncture in international responses to sexual violence and conflict, um, and sort of really establishing the issue as a, an issue of international importance on policy agendas. And then why the focus on uh, the fight against impunity? Um, efforts to promote judicial accountability have, are continue to be a really central pillar of internationally driven multi-sectoral responses to sexual violence in DRC. And they're driven, it's driven, by three core and interrelated aims. The first is to deliver a sense of justice uh, to survivors of sexual violence. The second is to restore a sense of faith in the rule of law as part of, sort of peace building and state building um, initiatives. And the third is to sort of signal, to send a message that sexual violence uh, will not go unpunished, so to deter would-be perpetrators from committing similar crimes by demonstrating, as I mentioned, that sexual violence will not go unpunished. 
So what I hope to show, though, is that the fight against impunity in practice may actually be functioning in distinct ways than those intended um, in international policy. And in, do, in doing so, I sort of foreground the interplay of institutional mandates and imperatives, along with sort of operational and contextual constraints in legal practice uh, to account for this discordance. Um, by way of broader context, as I mentioned, this is situated in, in my PhD thesis, uh, which, as you may have guessed, um, examines the relationship between theory, policy, and practice in responses to sexual violence in Eastern DRC. Um, and in particular, I'm interested in understanding the gendered assumptions that, under, that, un, that underpin and are reinforced by response mechanisms, um, and then how these bear upon our wider understandings of the way that gender operates in context of armed conflict. So a number of feminist scholars um, have noted that sexual violence responses uh, are underpinned by the assumption that women are inevitably the victims um, and that men are inevitably the perpetrators. And while my research ultimately shows that this underlying binary is reinforced and reified, it, it is so in more complex ways than I certainly initially envisioned. So to be clear, um, I am not challenging the notion that uh, men are the primary perpetrators of sexual violence. That would be untenable and I think quite an unhelpful argument to make. Um, but what I'm more interested in doing here is to trace which men uh, internationally driven uh, policies target in efforts to fight impunity for sexual violence in DRC, and then in turn to consider which men internationally driven efforts to fight impunity for sexual violence in DRC interact with in practice. Or, in other words, which men do policymakers <coughs> intend to hold to account, do they believe they're holding to account, and then which men are being held to account um, in practice. So as a, a brief note, I suppose, on, on the methods um, behind this research and on the analytical approach. So I conducted extensive research at the UN headquarters in New York and specifically with the NGO Working Group on Women, Peace and Security. Um, I spent sort of 13 months there between 2013 and 2014 um, and conducted interviews with key uh, policymakers and shapers, I suppose, behind the resolutions and the broader gender protection uh, slash women, peace and security architecture. And then I've been working in Congo sort of on and off since 2014 under different institutional guises. So importantly, this multi-sided and multi-institutional approach is what's enabled me to sort of to discern and to see the different ways in which this idea of sexual violence in conflict is seen under different sets of institutional <coughs> eyes, notably in relation to the victims and the perpetrators that are engaged with on a sort of everyday daily basis. And doing so, I really sought to better understand the roles and constraints within which differently positioned actors um, or responders are operating. So for this particular piece, I'm drawing first on the research I conducted in New York, um, and then subsequently on data that I um, sort of generated and gathered in uh, working with the judicial system in North and South Kivu, which included interviewing um, notably sort of clerks and secretaries working in, uh, well, uh, working in police stations as well as police officers themselves, prosecutors, uh, judges, um, you name it. Uh, and one of the, the most, I we'll talk about the data quite a bit now, one of the most fun, I suppose, aspects was sitting with clerks and secretaries going through the, the records that they keep to sort of get a sense of, as I say, the types of cases that, the numbers and types of cases that are being recorded uh, in the institutions in which they work. Um, analytically, my approach is, uh, I suppose, very much inspired by the works of post-colonial and critical feminists of international relations and international law, who have long been attentive, and I quote Monroe here, as you'll see, the ways in which women have been excluded, marginalized, silenced, misrepresented, patronized, or victimized by international institutions. 
And they've often used this idea of gendered subjects or figures as a key analytical vehicle uh, through which to sort of draw out and communicate politics of representation and their often essentializing effects. As a whole, however, I find that this body of, of literature, while I'm very much inspired by it, tends to overlook the role of institutional imperatives and the micropolitics behind micro, macro policies. On the one hand, and overlooks the role of operational and contextual constraints in practice on the other. So foregrounding these last two elements, I apply this sort of critical feminist approach uh, to think about institutional representations of and interactions with conflict-affected men um, in DRC. So that takes us to the... Oh, sorry, I forgot I should have briefed our methods. Um, so this takes us now into the substance, and reporting on sexual violence, uh, notably in DRC, predominantly centers on acts of sexual violence committed by armed men in uniform or parties to the conflict. And from the onset, this emphasis was made explicit. Um, in 2002, as you'll see the report here, Human Rights Watch published a report entitled The War Within the War, Sexual Violence Against Women and Girls in Eastern Congo, which effectively sounded the alarm to the issue. In effect, it was the first report to shine a spotlight on sexual violence perpetrated in DRC's conflicts, bringing to bear its scale and brutality, uh, which, and I quote, was frequently and sometimes systematically perpetrated by armed men in uniform against civilian women and girls during the war. In its introductory summary, the report states that most forces involved in the conflict use sexual violence as a weapon of war, at times raping women as part of a more general attack to terrorize communities and accepting their control or to punish them uh, for real or supposed aid to opposing forces. But the, the authors also note that sexual violence is increasingly committed by a variety of perpetrators, but that nevertheless the focus of the report is on crimes of sexual violence committed by soldiers and other combatants, so again, parties to the conflict. Now, this focus was sustained uh, by feminist and women's rights activists, um, advocates, sorry, who were working with and within the UN in the pursuit of a key advocacy goal, which was to establish sexual violence in conflict as a self-standing issue on the UN Security Council agenda. So I'm, if anybody wants to ask about this later, I think it's quite a fun story, but this is a picture of a, a documentary that actually played a like, really key role in generating, in effect, a lot of the, the momentum and the, the, the political will to get Resolution 1820 off the ground. Um, it's on, it's really, I haven't been able to find the full, the full film online, um, but it was once available on Amazon, and it mentions there, it's credited, in effect, for the resolution itself. Um, so if anybody wants impact in the policy world, it seems as though documentaries are, are the way to go. Um, so achieving this goal of establishing uh, sexual violence in conflict as a self-standing issue on the Council's agenda required some strategic maneuvering uh, largely to persuade a resistant council of the importance and even the relevance of sexual violence to its mandate. So pertinently to this discussion, this meant sort of delimiting when and what types of sexual violence fall within the remit of the council. And as quite crudely stated uh, by one of my respondents, I don't think Russia's ever going to believe that, you know, a husband raping his wife, unless he's being held at gunpoint by, you know, a military officer, should count on the sexual violence and conflict agenda. And as we can start to glean from this quote, the profile of the perpetrator was quite an important distinguishing factor. In effect, sort of clarifying this point, the respondent explained that some member states don't want to understand the coercive atmosphere that's created. That's not to say that every act of sexual violence that happens in countries in conflict is sexual violence in conflict, but I think that lots of member states don't want to understand that link beyond the sort of very clear, he's in a military uniform. So from this perspective, the presence of a military uniform sort of automatically comes to represent the symbol, quoting from another interview, the symbol of being a sexual predator. 
And it's clear that just viewing it in this way glosses over a host of sexual harms that are committed in conflict contexts, including intimate partner violence committed by civilians, as well as um, sort of violence against sexual and gender minorities, for example, uh, again, sort of within civilian spaces. But what also became clear over the course of my research was that not all military uniforms are treated equally under the Security Council's institutional eyes. Not all acts of sexual violence committed by an individual in a military uniform constitute sexual violence in conflict under the Women, Peace and Security agenda, nor do they therefore trigger the same institutional response mechanisms. Notably, while it's widespread across peacekeeping missions, sexual violence perpetrated by UN peacekeepers falls under the separate policy category of sexual exploitation and abuse, or SEA, and is addressed under the remit of conduct and discipline, which is just a completely different part of the house, again, as it was described by a respondent. So this policy and in effect operational distinction is no coincidence. According to a UN women's rights advocate who again was quite um, prominent in, in getting 1820 off the ground, the conflation between conflict related sexual violence and sexual exploitation and abuse created a number of closed doors. This was particularly challenging in relation to troop contributing countries or TCCs on the council who were concerned that she recounted. We were just there to point the finger at them for SEA incidents. As she explained in our interview, she and her colleagues thus pushed to formalize a distinction between conflict-related sexual violence perpetrated by active parties to the conflict and SEA perpetrated by peacekeepers and other intervening actors to keep these political jaws ajar. So when I asked if this was the reason why there exists this clear delineation, in no uncertain terms she responded, yep, yep, that's the reason why. It's a tactical and strategic decision that we made very deliberately. And I can tell you honestly that had we not done that, we would be nowhere with conflict-related sexual violence. So as a result, perpetrators of conflict-related sexual violence became defined as armed men in uniform, crucially who do not sport a blue UN peacekeeping helmet. So it's sexual violence committed by this category of perpetrators that response efforts intend to target, including in efforts to promote accountability and to fight impunity. Yet as duly stated by the authors of the independent review of SEA in the Central African Republic, for victims of sexual violence, it's immaterial whether the perpetrator was wearing a blue helmet or not. So, I want to turn to a video. Um, but this focus, as I try to find it, so you'll see from the quote, this focus um, was on armed men in uniform and not peacekeepers. It's very clear in, in sort of the statement and text there from the former excuse me while I play around with technology, um, former representative of the Secretary General to Sexual Violence and Conflict, who very clearly, how do I? That's good. Yeah, okay. I suppose I removed. Okay. Sort of very clear references to, to military uniforms uh, and badges. And in this video, that, as I mentioned, was produced by the FCO in the run-up to the Global Summit uh, to End Sexual Violence and Conflict, um, the, same kind of, the same emphasis is, is quite evident. And I thought, uh, to give you all a break from my voice, it might be nice to... Uh, I mean, it's not a great video. Um, there is a weapon that doesn't just leave physical wounds, it leaves emotional wounds. A weapon of power, violence, and control. A weapon that is just as scary as bombs and bullets, but invisible. Rape. Rape and sexual violence are used against women, girls, men, and boys. Victims are sometimes abandoned by their families. And the anger and shame left behind can tear communities apart and make wars last longer. Rape. 
Especially when the monsters who do it are allowed to get away with it. Even live near their victims. But it doesn't have to be this way. Rape and sexual violence are the worst crimes you can imagine. But they are not an inevitable part of war. It's time to act to end sexual violence and conflict. Time to act to bring those responsible to justice. Time to act to let governments know that enough is enough. Time to act so that those who live in fear of sexual violence have a chance to feel safe. Time to act to make your voice heard. Okay. So, as we can see from the video, there is a clear idea, um, I mean, I think, of the nature of the harm uh, of, of sexual violence and conflict, and notably of who the perpetrators of sexual violence and conflict are and the redress that's thus warranted, which is fighting impunity, sort of judicial accountability. So with this in mind, who is the fight against impunity reaching in practice in DRC? So to explore this question, um, I'll first speedily walk through the outcomes of the high-profile uh, MINOVA trial, which took place, as I mentioned, in the town of MINOVA in May 2014. And then I'll speedily walk through cases that we see making it to and through courts on a more sort of quotidian, everyday basis um, in these less exceptional trials. So to explain, well, I suppose I'll come in a minute, but to explain this picture, it's, it was one of the more iconic pictures that came out of the, of the trial that was spread around media. It's also the cover of... Uh, Millie Lake's book. I don't know if you've come across her work. I highly recommend it if you're interested in, in, this, in this area and, and more generally. Um, but these were the sort of protective uh, clothing that were given to victims who testified um, at the trials. Um, and the microphone sort of concealed their voices uh, in some way too. But sort of backtracking. So a handful of, of incidents of mass rape have become particularly notorious in Eastern DRC. And one such event took place in November 2012, uh, when following the defeat of the M23 armed group, hundreds of soldiers uh, from the National Army, the FARDC, retreated to Minova, which is say, uh, a town on, on the shores of, of beautiful Lake Kivu, bordering between the North and South Kivu provinces. What ensued was a 10-day frenzy of destruction, as it was de sort of described by Human Rights Watch, um, which included widespread looting and sexual violence with some reports estimating that more than 1,000 women, children, and men were raped in this town alone. Most reports estimated the numbers of incidents to be around 130. Um, but some such descriptions of the attack, importantly, seem to align quite closely uh, with the policy definitions or the ideas that we just um, talked about above, including in terms of the perpetrators of the harm as the National Army, um, as well as the nature um, of the harms too. Now, because of the scale of the attack and the outcry that followed, Congolese authorities came under quite significant pressure to hold those responsible to account, uh, which led to this sort of high-profile, highly mediatized trial. 76 charges were brought, were brought against 39 defendants. Uh, 33 of the charges were for rape as a war crime, and one was for rape of a minor under domestic legislation. 
76 civil parties or victims testified to the tri uh, at the trial, uh, which included 50 testimonies uh, for rape and 26 testimonies for crimes of pillage, although most of the parties testifying uh, for rape were also victims of, of pillaging. However, only two convictions were secured for sexual violence, and only one of which was for rape as a war crime. The other was for the rape of the minor under ordinary, as an ordinary crime that I just mentioned. So all defendants accused of rape as a war crime, but one were acquitted, uh, although some were charged with lesser crime. This verdict was widely viewed as a disappointment, as a fail failure to deliver justice, and as a new insult to the victims of sexual violence in DRC. And it was seen to sort of confirm the, this idea of the dysfunctional state, the dysfunctional state of the Congolese justice system. Now, I don't have the time and probably wouldn't want to bore you with going through the legal reasoning uh, behind the acquittals because I don't really have the time. Um, but I do have a more extensive discussion that I'd be happy to share with anybody if you're interested. But ultimately, a combination of sort of political and military dynamics, evidentiary constraints, <coughs> and resource limitations contributed to the acquittals. As far as I can see, it seemed to be, I mean, and it was legally reasoned. What is more relevant for our purposes, though, is to think about that one soldier who was convicted uh, for sexual violence um, and for rape specifically as a war crime in Minova. So this indictment, as it, this was not a command responsibility indictment, but one of individual criminal responsibility, uh, which meant that it required both evidence of this individual criminal responsibility and contextual elements linking to the crime of the conflict. I'll focus on the former, so it's most relevant to our conversation now. So proving individual criminal responsibility and beyond reasonable doubt can be especially challenging in conflict contexts. As explained by the verdict of the court, generally, with respect to sexual violence, perpetrators take measures to not be identified by their victims. They favor acting when it's dark, blinding their victims with the light of their electric torches, intimidating them with threats to stop them from staring at them, warding off potential witnesses, so the victim becomes the only witness to the aggression. Herein lies the importance of her statement so the judge can appreciate her credibility. So the officer who was convicted on the charge of rape as a war crime was recognizable by virtue of an exceptional physical feature. You can see on the picture, a missing thumb. According to the verdict, the victim recognized the suspect whom she'd previously seen fetching water from the fountain who had a missing finger on his, on his hand, a feature she easily remembered. I'm quoting from the verdict again. So central was this feature to the proceedings, the suspect's defense argued that the victim had only noticed the missing thumb during preliminary investigations, a claim that was later proven unfounded, because in effect, in the aftermath of the, of the attack, she had um, sort of gone to a local cleric, um, and in her seeking support from him, had given, uh, sort of had mentioned this distinctive sign on his body uh, of his cut thumb. So what does this mean? Um, it suggests that even when, or maybe especially when, circumstances of sexual violence and conflict align closely with those associated with this sort of quintessentialist narrative and therefore with this quintessentialist perpetrator, the outcome of Minova indicates the necessity of an exceptional physical feature to prove individual criminal responsibility. So, everyday justice. Coming to the end, I promise. This is probably the most dense part though, so bear with me. Um, we'll come to the end. So as I mentioned, Minova was exceptional in several regards, uh, not least the resources that were invested in that one particular trial, as well as the high-level media attention. But on an everyday basis, there's you know, similar um, well, important insights to be gleaned too. And during my research, so including with the Human Rights Center Sexual Violence Program at the Berkeley School of Law, 
uh, and certainly in the early phases of it, uh, with local judicial actors, we, so me and uh, my colleague Suzanne Alden, were surprised to find that judicial systems were in effect functioning. Almost everything I had read or knew uh, about them uh, the times sort of pointed to their deplorable or dysfunctional state, uh, both of the civilian and military justice systems. We were all the more surprised to find that the justice system was in fact functioning to investigate and prosecute sexual violence crimes. So we're talking about, this is different to the Minova um, space, which was an operational military court. But these were functioning to investigate and prosecute sexual violence crimes. Um, and in fact, this was being prioritized. Conviction rates, once cases reach the courts, so to the, the point of judgment, conviction rates are actually high, in some cases up to 80%, which is much higher than you see in the UK. I think in London this year it was about 7% conviction, rate, uh, conviction rates for sexual violence. However, it also became clear the more we sort of dug into the cases that the types of sexual violence cases that local judicial actors were prosecuting were not of the kind that we imagined. In other words, they were a far cry from those depicted in this sort of quintessentialist narrative. So in my thesis, I show that this has implications for both female victims as well as for the male perpetrator, or men and boys who have been suspected or accused of having committed an act of sexual violence. But in line with the sort of general focus on perpetrators, I won't talk about female victims here, but happy to. Um, but they sort of mirror, the analysis sort of mirrors, they mirror each other. So it's important to give a little bit of legislative context or domestic legislative context. In 2006, a new sexual violence law was passed in DRC, um, which has been widely heralded nationally and internationally for its expansive and progressive nature, um, as well as its strong punitive measures. What is less frequently noted, though, is that it increased the age of legal marriage and of sexual consent from 15, as it was in the Family Code, to 18 which effectively created a whole new category of legal or statutory victims under the law for whom the notion of consent is in effect legally void. You don't need to prove consent if you can prove that the young girl is under 18. While the devil really is in the detail here, I'm going to try and not get too lost in the numbers, um, but we'll try and pull out some of the, some of the key trends. Um, on this and the next slide, I include a couple of tables with cases recorded by the POVS, which is the Specialised Sexual Violence Unit um, set up specifically to receive and investigate cases of, of sexual violence. And um, the officers in there have received quite extensive training, um, extensive and specialised training by uh, including sort of the European, European, European police um, as, well as, as well as others. So they don't represent the whole justice system by any means, but they're intended to be the first stop or point of entry to the judicial system for survivors to report to. <coughs> they're also neither specific to the military or civilian justice systems, meaning that we can expect to see, or we could expect to see, uh, cases perpetrated by either civilians uh, or parties to the conflict, uh, uniformed personnel, members of armed groups. So they offer a good starting point uh, for, for this discussion. So as you'll see from the numbers here, so this is Ngoma, the provincial capital of, uh, of North Kivu. There were 477 total cases reported to the unit between 2013 and 14. But of these, only three uh, of the suspected perpetrators were identified as being from the armed or an armed group. In Bukavu, uh, we see that nine of the 236, this was just for 2014, um, were identified as being uniformed personnel. So in effect, 96% were identified as being civilians. Now, while I've not depicted it in the table, data from Bukavu, which is the provincial capital of South Kivu, sorry, they also, in, in, the, in the records there, gave insights into the suspects' ages, their professions, sort of allowing me to have a more nuanced analysis, a more nuanced and textured analysis of the profiles of the perpetrators. The age of the suspected perpetrators was specified in 107 of the cases. Um, 
for 2014, and this varied between uh, from 12 and one case as the youngest um, to 67, uh, which was the highest. The average age of the suspected perpetrators of this 107 was 25, with 82% being between 15 and 30. Um, this actually equates exactly with uh, numbers found in, in previous years by UNDP. Um, and it's also worth noting here that the average age of victims recorded for 2014 was, was 16. So with regards to professions, uh, when recorded or known uh, on the civilian side, there was some variation ranging from sort of students and pupils to unemployed cultivators, motorbike drivers, um, construction workers, among others. But the most highly represented were students and those unemployed. And when asked about the trends in perpetrator profiles uh, reported, the officer from uh, the commanding officer from the unit in, in Goma emphasised their young age and low socioeconomic status. Perpetrators are usually young, usually between 17 to 45. They usually have uh, an education level that's not surpassed the average, and they are unemployed. <coughs> Similar patterns were identified across magistrates' courts um, and in tribunals so further along the, the judicial chain. Echoing this, the, the, the police officer above, um, the general prosecutor also in Goma stated that very often, very often they're idle young men. They're generally people of the same generation, the girl is 14, the perpetrator is 21, or they're both minors. What about in the justice, the military justice system? So here, several trends were notable too. Uh, the numbers of reported cases were significantly lower than in the civilian justice system. Um, for example, the magistrate's office in Goma, uh, on the civilian side, we saw 857 cases reported between 2013 and 2014, but there were only 122 on the equivalent military side in the same period. And the higher up the military judicial chain, um, and therefore the, higher ju the jurisdiction over higher-ranking officers, the numbers just got lower and lower. Like in the civilian justice system, military officers uh, often reported tended to, to be known or identifiable to the victim, uh, which was quite in contrast to what we heard in, in terms of Minova and, and concealing identity. Uh, and then only in one of the 122 cases reported in Goma that I mentioned was the suspect not identifiable or known to the victim. <coughs> they also tended to be low, lower military grades, and that is of lower socioeconomic class and military stature, which also aligns with the findings of the civilian justice system. And echoing the civilian prosecutor that I mentioned, uh, the secretary of the military magistrate office in Goma stated that the 2006 law uh, came in with a lot of vigor. We arrest boys who are 19 or 20 here in the, the garrison who rape young girls and who are minors. So what was made clear across the military and civilian jurisdictions is that the vast majority of cases of sexual violence reported to and addressed by formal judicial systems in, in the region, including in the specialized units, the magistrates' offices, the courts and tribunals were statutory rape that is involving a girl who's under 18. So this doesn't tell us much about the dynamics um, behind the cases or the nature of the cases, but there was a, a term sorry, used colloquially to refer to these cases of statutory rape that involve a female minor who in most cases is engaging for all intents and purposes in consensual sexual relationships, and that term is of copinage. So these cases are often reported by a family member who either doesn't approve of uh, their daughter's relationship or to pressure their daughter's boyfriend in delivering a bride price. Now, I do want to be clear in saying that I'm not stating that every case of sexual violence reported to the justice system um, in Eastern DRC constitutes copinage in this way. But during our research, we heard story upon story of young girls visiting either their legally prescribed perpetrator uh, in jail, bringing their children to visits in jail, uh, and even of threatening to kill themselves if their boyfriend was convicted or imprisoned. 
So such cases as we heard them don't seem to be delivering justice for sexual violence in the way that it's intended, um, nor is it reaching those it seems to be intending to. Rather, it seems to signal the often overlooked and disproportional effect of socioeconomic class and indeed of age in the operation of the law. The law in this way seems to be operating more as a means of sexual regulation rather than one of delivering justice or redress to the survivors. Um, so to conclude, I want to highlight three points. And before doing so, I want to emphasize that responding to sexual violence in conflict, as in any context, is important and should be appropriately resourced. But in doing so, we need to keep in mind how response structures are operating, how they're perceived to be operating in policy, and how they're operating in practice. So as I've showed through this presentation, notions of perpetratorhood, of sexual violence in conflict, and in DRC specifically, are, were carefully and strategically delineated for international peace and security policy as armed men in uniform or parties to the conflict, producing this sort of quintessentializing narrative of sexual violence, and in turn, producing quintessentialist perpetrator. And this sort of highlighted the importance, though, of accounting for institutional imperatives and political dynamics in defining a policy issue in any given political moment. But through the second and third parts of the presentation, it was clear that this quintessentialist perpetrator is less easily discernible in domestic legal practice. And so it's important to account for contextual realities and the often overlooked influence of class and age in the operation of the law. And with that, if we return to the fact that the fight against impunity is deemed to be important for its effects in signaling certain messages to the population, notably that crimes of sexual violence and conflict will not go unpunished, and their current fu functioning, it seems as though efforts to fight impunity seem to say as much about who is punished and punishable under the law as it does about what is punished and punishable under the law. So with that, I'll leave it there and open to questions, and, and thank you for bearing with the, the, the presentation. Thank you.